I know many of us are familiar with the story. We're going to read from Luke chapter 24, uh, the last few verses where Jesus appears to the disciples. Let's just recap on the story. Of course, it's on the Friday, what we call Good Friday, that the disciples who have followed Jesus for three years, more than three years, uh, they've heard his teaching. They've never heard teaching like it. Huge crowds gather to him. They've seen him do remarkable miracles. Uh, They're beginning to realize surely he's more than a prophet. He can calm storms. He can take a few loaves and a few fish and feed thousands. He's even turned up at a widow's son's funeral, touched the side of the coffin, and the boy sits up. And they're beginning to realize maybe this Jesus is the one that the prophets have talked about. This is the one sent from God. This is the one who's going to rescue us, make our nation great again, fulfill all the promises that we've been longing for. But then, on the Thursday night, he's arrested. This man who knows incredible supernatural power just is led calmly away that some of the disciples protest. He doesn't protest. Um, and he's arrested by the Roman soldiers. He endures a trial which is utterly and completely rigged, false accusations, things said about him which just aren't uh, true, but again, he stays silent most of the time. He's whipped, he's beaten, it's horrific. If we were to spend time describing it this morning, it really wouldn't feel like a happy Easter, as he endures (coughs) what later the writers of the New Testament would come to understand is the all the brokenness, wickedness, and evil that's happened in the world and is still happening is put on Jesus in those hours building up to a torturous death. And meanwhile, the disciples are thinking, but we thought he was the one. We thought he was the one that was going to fulfill the promises. They scatter, disappointed, disillusioned. On the third, on the third day, the first day of the week, that first Sunday morning, very early the gospel writers tell us, and earlier in Luke chapter 24, you can read about it, some of the women go to the tomb in the garden to anoint his body. Uh, They didn't get time to do that when it was taken down from the cross, so they're going with oils to anoint the body, but they get there, and the the stone isn't there anymore, and instead they meet angels who utter this incredible line, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Well, because he's dead. (laughs) He's not alive. You may be angels, but weren't you there? Didn't you see from your heavenly seat what happened? And as they wander over this and begin to realize the body's not there, the clothes are laid out in the tomb, the other couple of the other disciples appear, one goes into the tomb, sees that it's empty, Um, then in another Uh, one of the gospel accounts, Mary gets to talk to Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener and says, where have you put him? Um, And then when Jesus speaks to her, she realizes he's alive. So they all run back to tell the other disciples. Meanwhile, in Luke's account, there are two disciples. We only know one of their names, two followers of Jesus. One's called Cephas. We don't know the name of the other one. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're so disappointed, so confused, so devastated. They're, they're not even in a room with the rest of the disciples. They're leaving, and they're on a road going to Emmaus. And then suddenly, Jesus appears to them, um, and they don't recognize him for a while. And you get this comical conversation where they turn to Jesus. He asks them, what's happened? Why are you so sad? And they say to Jesus, who says there's no humor in the Gospels, they say to Jesus, are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on around here? No, he is the only one who really knows what's going on around here. No one else really knows. He's alive. And they don't see him, they don't recognize him. 
And then they invite him in for a meal and he breaks bread and thanks God for it. And in that moment, they realize it's him. And then he disappears. Because he's alive, but he's not alive with a body like ours anymore. This is a different kind of resurrection from the boy at the funeral. Because Jesus is never going to die again. And he's not been made alive with an earthly body. He's been made alive with a body that looks like an earthly body, but can just walk through walls and disappear and come and go at will. And they say, we knew it was him. Didn't our hearts burn within us when we heard him talk? And they run all the way back from Emmaus, back down to Jerusalem, just a few miles, and say to the disciples, it's him, he's alive, we've seen him. That's where our story begins. So Luke 24, I haven't got a PowerPoint, I'm sorry, I know it's outrageous. So for those of you that have real Bibles, um, you can open them and find Luke. Others of you, just hit a few buttons and uh, it will take you there much quicker. So Luke 24, (coughs) I'm going to read a few verses from here um, and then we'll reference a few other passages. I'm sorry there's no PowerPoint. I think we'll manage. Oh, we've got one up. James is there. He's on it. Oh, exactly. Oh, he's on it. Fantastic. (laughs) So, while they were still talking about this, that's the two guys coming back from Emmaus, the disciples are still talking, discussing, we, we say it's him, we've seen him, he broke bread with us, they're still talking about it. Jesus himself stood among them, now the door's locked, so he suddenly appears um, into a locked room and says, peace be with you, which again is a little bit funny, because he's meant to be dead, and the last thing they're going to be feeling is peace. I think at that point the reaction would be more... <laughs> Well, it would, wouldn't it? I'm not just trying to have some fun here. A dead man's just appeared in the room. Your mates are telling you that they've seen him, and that was miles away. Someone says they met the gardener, but it wasn't the gardener, it was Jesus. There's all kinds of confusion, and suddenly, through a locked door, he appears into a full room. You're not going to sit there and say, all right, nice to see you. (laughs) Oh, it is you. Fantastic. Someone put kettle on, we'll have some tea. Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, there's my point. Thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Oh, forgive our lack of faith. Because we never believed you'd come back. Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see where I've been crucified. It's I myself. Touch me. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So it's a body, but it's a new creation, eternal life body. It's like ours, but different. When he said this, he showed him his hands and feet. While they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Isn't that a great line? They're overwhelmed with joy and amazement. They're astonished. They can't get over it. And that's stopping them from believing. I haven't processed it yet. This is amazing. What's going on? Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, took it and ate it in their presence. Again, just showing, hey, it's me. This isn't a ghost. He said to them, this is what I told you while still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Now I'm going to stop there. Jesus goes on. He opens the scriptures to them and does an incredible scriptural study where he says, look, this passage is talking about me. This passage is pointing to me. This passage is pointing to me. This story is pointing to me. And he shows them 
how he is the fulfillment of everything that was said beforehand. And then says to them, now, because of these things, you're witnesses of everything. And this good news of repentance and faith will be taken to every people on the planet. (coughs) And that's the story. What I want us to look at, because so many of us are so familiar uh, with this story, I want us to look at Jesus' greeting. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. That's what we're going to look at. (coughs) Because it's more than a greeting. What Jesus is saying here is shalom, the word for wholeness, for well-being. The word shalom means a completeness, it means rest, it means healing, it means whole. Um, And it is used as a greeting, it's still used as a greeting right across uh, the Middle East. Muslims have their equivalent greeting and people would say all the time to each other. So Jesus is definitely bringing a greeting. But the thing is, is he'd have done that every time he met the disciples. He'd have done that and they'd have done it to him every time they met. But nowhere else in Luke's story does he record Jesus greeting them. And greetings are really important in the Middle East. Uh, As many of you know, a lot of my time is spent working in the Middle East with some of the churches that we're working with there um, and some of the believers from uh, (coughs) a different background to us and all the persecution and difficulties that they face. Um, And sometimes we'll get together in conferences to learn, uh, to hear teaching from one another. And a Moroccan believer in one of our seminars spent over 20 minutes um, teaching us as Westerners why greetings are really important in the Arabic-speaking world. 20 minutes to half an hour he spoke on how you say hello. It was a seminar on saying hello. Because all we would do is, hi, Mirad, you all right? Yeah, good, praise God. And that's a, that's a greeting? Like Arabs, that's not a greeting, that's an insult. So greetings, I, 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 I want to tell you why he spent 30 minutes. I can't, we've got to do this. But what we need to get is greetings are really, really important. They really matter. It's not just a hi, a, a hello, it's more than that. But nowhere does Luke record any of the greetings anywhere else other than this one. Why this one? Because I think it's more than a greeting. I think Jesus isn't simply saying, shalom, peace to you. I know I'm supposed to be dead and I've scared the life out of you. He's making a declaration. He's making a statement of what his death and resurrection has achieved. He's making a declaration that war is finished and now it's shalom, now it's peace. He's making a declaration that sickness and brokenness and wickedness and evil has finally been defeated and humanity's war against these things is finished. He's making a declaration that where before there was hopelessness, darkness, disappointment that would dominate and rule in our lives, now it's peace. It is shalom. Jesus isn't simply appearing in the room to say, everyone calm down, peace, shalom, it's me. I'm alive, why, why are you amazed at these things? Didn't I tell you this? No, he's making a statement. He appears in the room to say shalom, wholeness, well-being, peace, healing, life is here. Jesus isn't simply bringing a greeting in this statement and Luke and the disciples know that. He's making a statement of everything his death and resurrection has achieved and everything it has won for us. And if you go back through the gospel story of what happened in his death and resurrection, (coughs) we can see some of the things that point to this peace, which is what I want us to do this morning. 
Now, obviously, as the disciples and then people uh, like Paul, who met the resurrected Jesus sometime later, began to think and reflect on everything that Jesus had done and taught and his death and resurrection and how they took that back to what we call the Old Testament would have been their scriptures, they began to understand so much more about what this peace meant, so much more about what Jesus' death and resurrection meant as the Holy Spirit spoke to them, as they looked at the scriptures and the prophecies. We're not going to take that angle. What I just want us to look at, some of the things that happened in the story as to why there is peace, as to why this is more than just a greeting. Firstly is this. There's peace because Jesus wore a crown of thorns. <coughs> Many of you will know that. If you're not familiar with the story, as they took Jesus to the cross, they crowned him as king of the Jews and the crown they gave him was a crown of thorns. Why thorns? We can think it's just it's torture, it's painful, because this would have sat on his head. These would have been big thorns. They would have really, really hurt. No, it means more than this. At the start of the story, at the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis, where we read about how wickedness and evil first came into creation, you've got God made everything, saying it's good, really, really good. It's shalom, it's whole, it's complete gives it to Adam and Eve, gives them authority, says, look, all of this is for you. I'll walk in the garden with you. Meanwhile, you can tend and care for all of this. You can multiply, have children. All of this is yours. Just that tree there, that one tree, don't touch that one. You can have this one and 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 all of these. You just can't have that one because if you eat of that, it's going to change everything. If you eat of that, it's disobedience. Don't touch that one. Death will come into the world. Stay away from that one. But of course, the devil, disguised as a serpent, the snake in the story, comes to Eve and says, God didn't really mean that. Do you honestly think that's that big a problem? Look at all these other ones you can eat from. It's, it's not going to be that much if you have this one. God's just scared of what's going to happen to you. You'll become like him. You can eat this one. And Adam, who's totally not bothering to pay any attention or to protect his wife or to take any responsibility, just goes along with it. So they eat the tree. They eat from the fruit of that tree. The tree's important. Come back to it in a minute. What happens then? Well, in Genesis 3, when God comes, several things happen. We'll refer to some others later. But one of the things he says, now this ground is cursed. Because of you, Adam, and your sin, Eve is cursed too, humanity is cursed, the ground is cursed. It will produce thorns. From now on, whenever you go to tend the ground, instead of it being easy, it will become hard work now. The thing that was good, the thing of all this creation that I made to grow and work and in harmony together and in shalom, now it's broken. What you have done, this one act has totally ruined everything because what was good and I gave it to you in your act of rebellion, in your act of turning from me, in your act of saying, no, we know better. We'll listen to the snake. Why listen to God? He's given us all of this. What does he know? We'll listen to the snake. That one act has broken all of this and even the ground will bear thorns. Jesus is crowned with thorns because the curse that came in the garden is being broken by his death on the cross. The thorns weren't simply there for torture. The thorns were there in God's plan because the curse that came in that garden <coughs> in the creation story 
And the power of the curse that has been over the world ever since that act is now being broken by the death of Jesus. That's why he can say shalom. Because his death, by taking on him the curse, as we're going to go on and see, its power was being broken. So there's peace because the curse over creation is being overcome. There's peace because he died on a tree. It was the fruit of a tree that Adam and Eve ate, and they sinned at the tree, and that's what brought the brokenness, the evil, the wickedness, and everything that's wrong in the world into this perfect world that God had made, the fruit of a tree. Jesus is crucified on a tree. It's not just that it happens to be the implement of Roman torture. It's because the sin happened as a result of eating from the wrong tree. So Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, gives his life on a tree. Paul talks about this in Galatians. <clears throat> he says, you're under a curse. Um, sorry, wrong verse. Paul, actually, before I get to that, let me give you some more background. <clears throat> that all of humanity gets cursed. It's not just creation. We see that the sin keeps working, and Cain and Abel, <coughs> two brothers, and Cain, in a fit of jealousy and envy, kills his brother Abel, and God curses him in judgment and says, you and all your descendants will be cursed. Eventually, God gets a people through Abraham, makes a great nation, and he gives them the law. And this idea of what's blessing and curse, obedience to God's law or disobedience to God's law, gets written into the covenant. And in Deuteronomy 28, you see God saying, look, if you live this way, it's a bit like the Garden of Eden again. If you follow my commands, if, if you do what I want, if you recognize me as God and live the way I want, there is blessing on your household, there's blessing on your children, there's blessing on your land, there's blessing on the fruit of your crops, there's blessing on your livestock. There's blessing for your future. But if you don't live my way, if you turn from me, this is Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you turn from me and decide to go your way, just like what happened in the garden, in effect, God is saying, well, then the, there's curse. And there will be curse on your family, curse on the ground, curse on your livestock, and your future is cursed. Blessing and curse. And the story, as it unfolds through the Old Testament, tragically, is again and again and again, humanity is under the curse. And you see good people raised up by God who are trying to follow him and trying to lead the people into blessing, but then even some of them fall because they're cursed and they don't obey. People like Abraham, who's still held up as a hero of faith, but when you look at his life, you think he didn't follow everything God said. And even Moses had moments of rebellion. And then David. So even with the people we want to celebrate and say, well, these are the ones that were after God, you still see the curse working in their lives. Yes, they were people of faith. Yes, they were people who, when confronted by God, would turn back to him and repent, but they're still cursed. And the tragedy is, despite God's blessing, despite God's promises, despite God leading his people, the curse comes through again and again and again because all of humanity has been cursed because of its sin and because of its rebellion. And so any talk, even today, um, I was sent a message from a, a friend uh, with a video, which in essence, I haven't got time to tell it all, to you, but it's basically what he believes. He and I have been having a discussion about the importance of Jesus and what Jesus taught. Um, and this video was basically about how you can find the God within and how you can uh, link to him by reprogramming your subconscious in the five minutes before you go to sleep. And it was all about the God that is within every one of us. Because he was saying, basically, we're innately good. All you've got to do is tap into it, and humanity will be so much better. I think, really? How many years, hundreds and thousands of years? 
of inhumanity to other humans, of genocide, of abject famine when it doesn't have to be that way, of individual families falling apart, of child abuse, of thousands and hundreds of orphans around the world, and the stories I hear from the Middle East of some of the things that are going on to men and women, and we still believe man is innately good. We still believe if we can tap in, get the message right, get the vibe right, get the psychology right, this is all in proof. Humanity is under a curse because we rebelled, because we turned our back on God. People say, well, God's a God of love. Why doesn't he just do so? Well, he did. He said, look, if you go this way, it will be different. There is love. There is peace. There is shalom. There is wholeness. Go this way, and it will be different. A man says, well, thank you very much. We'll take some of that way, but actually we'd rather do it like this because we know better. And so the story of the Bible is that we're under a curse, and the curse happened at the tree. And Jesus died on a tree to break that curse. So getting to what Paul said in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy. The reason Jesus died on a cross wasn't simply because that's what the Romans did. It was in order to break the curse of wickedness and evil. There is peace now. There is shalom now for those who put their faith in his death because it was through his death that the curse of wickedness and evil has been broken. He wore a crown of thorns. He was pinned, nailed to a tree to break the curse that is over humanity. Let's do another one from the story of the resurrection, of his death and resurrection. There's peace because the clothes are removed and just laid in the tomb. Don't worry, I will explain it. Now, one of the reasons why the gospel writers say, draw attention to the fact that his clothes are there, (coughs) is to say, look, no one had taken his body. Jesus really is alive. Because if they're going to steal the body, they don't leave the death shroud, what he's wrapped in, just on the side. You take the whole thing. But there's something else going on as well. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, in the garden, when the curse came, what's the first thing they did? They felt shame. They felt dirty. They felt contaminated. They felt unclean. They realized they were naked. Before that, there was no contaminate. There wasn't any sense of feeling dirty or unclean. But they violated God's law, and suddenly they realized there was shame. And they hid from God. And they covered themselves with fig leaves. This is hard for us to understand because it's so, and we're all grateful for this. straightforward that we should wear clothes (laughs) but it wasn't like that in the beginning there was no shame there was no problem with people being completely naked in all the beauty that God had made them in his image sin comes and there's shame and they cover themselves what does God do as the curse comes as judgment comes God in his mercy makes them clothes doesn't just leave them covered with vegetation Death comes into the world and it's the first sacrifice that God makes. Because he kills an animal, we don't know how, doesn't tell us. But it says God gave them skin of an animal to wear. They're wearing clothes to cover their shame. In the resurrection story, Jesus' clothes are left off on the side for everyone to see. Because Jesus' death and resurrection means there's no more shame. 
Jesus' death and resurrection means, yes, of course, it's still very appropriate for us to wear clothes. But there's no shame before our Heavenly Father now. There's no hiding. There's nothing to cover up. There's nothing to say, I can't look at him. I can't come to him because I'm dirty, because I'm contaminated. (coughs) Because when Jesus broke the curse on the, the tree, as Jesus wore the crown of thorns, Jesus was becoming the ultimate sacrifice. In the Garden of Eden was the first sacrifice when God killed an animal. And later, that sacrifice for sin gets enshrined in law. And the law that Moses brings, there's commands about what animals you have to bring if you have sinned and for different kinds of sins. And it gets enshrined in the law that the only way to be forgiven and redeemed from sin is to make a sacrifice. And Jesus, of course, as we know, is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb. And so there is peace because he is the ultimate sacrifice. And there's peace because in becoming the ultimate sacrifice, there is now no more shame, no more contamination, no more dirt, no more having to hide, no more having to cover ourselves. We can be totally uncovered. So Jesus leaves the clothes in the tomb as a reminder that shame has been taken care of. There is peace. There is shalom. You don't have to hide from him. There is no shame in your life now because his blood, his sacrifice, completely covers it. The writer to the Hebrews tells us this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross and being naked and hung up in front of people was the most shameful death you could have. And there on a tree, reminding us of sin came by the tree in the garden and shame came, Jesus hangs in all shame with soldiers and religious leaders mocking him and saying, how can he be the son of God naked in all his shame before the crowds? And Jesus took every bit of shame, humiliation, and wickedness that goes on in this world on himself so that you can know you're clean, so that you can know there is no more shame. And although rightly we still wear clothes, our heart doesn't need to be covered because Jesus' blood, when we put our faith and our trust in him, cleanses it and there's no more shame. One more. There's peace because of the angels. In the garden of Eden, as part of the curse, Adam and Eve are banished, never to come back. See, the garden's where God lives. The garden, if you like, is like the first temple. The garden's like the first holy of holies. When you trace the development of God's presence among his people through the Old Testament, God walks with them, strolls in the garden. It's like a holy place. There's no shame, there's no sin. And they walk and talk with him. As a result of their sin by the tree and the ground is cursed, they're separated from God's presence. And to stop them coming in, heavenly creatures are put there with flaming swords to stop anyone coming back into God's presence. In the resurrection, in the tomb, in the garden, there's heavenly creatures again. But this time the heavenly creatures are saying, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And they explain that this Jesus, this, he really is the Messiah, he really is the Saviour, because he's now alive. And as Mary turns away, she sees the gardener, Jesus. 
and he comes to her and utters her name. There's peace, there's shalom, because we now get to go into God's presence again. There's peace, there's shalom, because we're not excluded anymore. We're not going back into Eden, we're not going back to the garden, but we are going back into his presence. There is peace, there is shalom, because the angels announce he's alive, he's not dead, he is living. And in one of the gospel accounts, it's in that moment that Mary then meets the gardener, it's Jesus, and she is close to him again. There is peace, there is shalom, because you and I are no longer excluded. Our shame is removed, and we can come into his presence and be with him. The very thing we were made for, beginning to get back to the creation, beginning to get back to things being good, man and woman dwelling with God again. And in the garden of that resurrection on the first day of the week, there are signs pointing to what happened in that first garden and how Jesus is overcoming the wickedness and the sin. We were excluded and now we're not. The way was closed and now it's open. Before, when God lived in the Holy of Holies, only one priest once a year could go, no one else could go in. And if the priest didn't wash properly, do all the sacrifices properly, he wouldn't come out of there alive. But now the way is open. There are heavenly creatures again in the garden, but this time they're saying, not about death, not about stay away, but there is life, and you can know this life. And Mary meets the Messiah, who she thought was the gardener. There's peace because Mary meets the risen Jesus in the garden. The story begins in Eden. Yes, with Adam making his mistakes and contributing, but it begins with a woman listening to the snake and the curse comes. On that first day of the week, echoing the creation story on the first day and what God did, we're back in a garden and we're with a woman again. And this time, this woman hears her name mentioned by the risen Saviour and all her hopelessness and despair and disappointment and the spices that she was carrying to anoint his body is suddenly gone because he says, Mary. In a garden, a woman is the first to hear his voice. In the garden, like in Eden, where it was a woman who ate the the fruit first and the curse came. So Jesus again in the resurrection story saying, peace, shalom, this peace is complete the shalom is whole, the curse is being dealt with, the tree is taking care of it, all of creation is going to be affected because of the crown of thorns, and now it gets personal, face to face with a woman, to let all of humanity know this really is being made whole, to let everyone, not just Mary, to let you and I know, know everything that happened back here, all the wickedness, all the evil in Adam and Eve's rebellion and in their sin and in their turning away and in their choice to reject God, all the way through the wickedness and the cursed history and brokenness of humanity, we find ourselves three days over after that torturous death of who we thought was the Messiah, but now his life is gone, we're in the garden and he is alive and he gets very personal and it zooms in on one woman as he utters her name, Mary. And she realizes he is the one. He's not dead. He is alive. It's like the angel said, he has risen. And I'm looking at him in his eyes. And it wasn't just for her. It was for all of us. There is shalom. There is peace. Because our relationship with him is restored. 
and we're not excluded and we can come close. And there's peace because Jesus is alive with eternal life, never to die again. This is the last one, by the way. What I said in the story, he's got a body. It's like ours, but not like ours. This is eternal life that's made him alive. This is eternal life that he's now living with. He's never, ever going to die again. Unlike Lazarus, who he raised to life and eventually would die again, Jesus is never going to die. He's in his resurrected body. He can appear just like this. He still eats, and he can disappear out of the room and then turn up miles away just like this. Showing, demonstrating to the disciples, look, I'm no longer under the curse of death. I'm no longer under the rules of physics and how things have worked because there's a new creation happening. God's new creation, God's new life, God's what he has promised through the prophets is beginning now. It's not just that Jesus was alive again and you think death has been defeated, which is worth singing about, which we're going to do in a few minutes. It's more than this. It's that new creation life, eternal life, never to finish again, has broken into this world now. It's not just coming when we die. Our resurrection hope isn't simply that when you and I finish, stop breathing and go through a cremation fire or go into a hole in the ground and wait until he comes back, then we're alive. No, Jesus' new creation, resurrection life is here in the world now. And just in the, as in the garden, all the way back in Eden at the beginning of the story, God's life We were separated from it and death came into our life and death came into creation and death ruled over the world. So it is in a garden on that resurrection first day of the week, new creation breaks forth because Jesus is made alive not just with a normal physical body but somehow with the life of God that's raised him up into new creation. That's why there's shalom. That's why there's peace. And that's why there's peace now. (coughs) What's more, it's that new creation life that's working in us. See, we don't just celebrate resurrection because of what happened 2,000 years ago and think, yeah, he's alive, death is defeated. Yes, we can get hold of some theology here to understand that somehow new creation, God doing something new in the earth, which he hadn't done since that first creation, he's doing something new. This life that Jesus is now living hadn't existed on the earth. exists in heaven that hadn't existed on the earth in that way before. Now he's here, eternal life, walking around, disappearing, reappearing, appearing to his disciples, appearing to a woman in the garden, appearing to two on a road to Emmaus, later appearing to a crowd of 500, Paul says. So he's walking around and appearing to people. We don't just celebrate that that's resurrection life then, we bring it right up to date now. What's this? This. It's the resurrection life of Jesus in this room. Our salvation, that's the phrase which has got so trashed these days, understandably, for the way it gets used. Born again. You're born again, not with a little bit of spiritual energy to try and make you a better person, to try and make you live the rules better, to try and give you more energy to sing some worship songs. You're born again because you're made alive with the resurrection life and power of Jesus Christ. His resurrection life is in this room today. That's what the church is. It's not a group of people who enjoy meeting together socially and singing some songs and trying to do some good works in the community. 
This is the resurrection community of Jesus Christ. This is new community. This is new life. This is what it looks like. And yes, it's a mystery. Look around the room. I think what I'd much rather sing of Jesus being made alive. I don't feel very alive this morning. Some of you have had your Easter eggs all in one go, probably. (laughs) A few smirkish grins. Some people thinking, I wasn't allowed, if only. Yeah, calm down, Heather. (laughs) All of our children, bar Rachel, are away, but I've still got two children in the house when it comes to Easter eggs, haven't we, Rachel? (laughs) No shame. Yeah, I'll celebrate the resurrection life of Jesus, but mine, yes, again and again, the New Testament writers say you are saved with resurrection life. I've only got time for one verse, and then we're going to apply this and then worship. Paul, Ephesians 1, his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he, God, exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. That resurrection power, that resurrection life is working in you and I. That's what we were saved, brought out of shame and death, brought out from the curse with, was the resurrection power of Jesus. You may have thought you were just responding with a simple prayer. You prayed with some friends in a Christian meeting or in an Alpha course or alone at home when you began to understand God's love and mercy for you. You may have thought you were just responding, yes, with some emotion and it was real, but it just felt very ordinary and special, but it wasn't like being raised to life. Some of you would have felt power in that way when you believed. But regardless of what we were experiencing intellectually or emotionally, the truth is that when you believed in Jesus, you were made a new creation. That's the language Paul uses in Galatians. A new creation, the old, it's gone, it's finished. Yeah, there's plenty of it still here, plenty that's still getting old and saggy and everything else. But in here, it's resurrection life. This resurrection isn't simply an historical event which we know changes the future and that's why we worship and celebrate. No, it's more than that. This resurrection life has changed you. This resurrection life has changed me. This resurrection life has formed this, the church. That's why Jesus says shalom, peace. Because this shalom is what you should have in your hearts. Because this shalom is what you should carry with you every day of the week. Because he's alive. Died on a tree to break the curse. He wore a crown of thorns to break the curse. The heavenly creatures didn't (coughs) block people out. They opened up the way and declared he is alive. All the curse broken, the sacrifice given, his blood shed, in order that you and I could know shalom and wholeness. Our bodies may get broken. We may get sick. We may need to go to the doctor. We may pray for healing and see it, hallelujah, or pray for healing and it not come. But regardless of what happens circumstantially and physically in here, there is resurrection life. That is why there is shalom. That is why there is peace. That is why there is wholeness. That is why Jesus stood in the room with his (coughs) first gathering, if you like, of the church and announced shalom. Because this is to be a peace community, a community of wholeness, a community of healing, a community of love and acceptance, a community where we're being made new. There is shalom and well-being and wholeness here. This isn't just for one day, it's for this day. 
It's for every day. This is how we're to live and walk. And so to get even more specific, when there's fear in your life, believe the resurrection. When you're gripped by anxiety and not sleeping at night, believe the resurrection. When you're intimidated by what other people think of you and worried what's going to happen when you walk into a room at work and feel anxious and think, oh, no, no, I'm going to pull this off and I'm not sure my boss is going to get, I've tried as hard as I can, believe the resurrection. When you're struggling with sickness and thinking, why are my prayers not being answered? When will this end? Believe the resurrection. When relationships are broken and there's internal pain and hurt, believe the resurrection. When you're unsure about the future or you've got big decisions to make and you're not sure which way to go and your mind is cloudy and you're desperately wishing you'd have some direction, believe the resurrection. Our hearts and our innermost being is to be at peace. And one of the tragedies of what happens for the church in the West, for all our materialistic benefits, for all the peace that democracy has brought us, for all the education that we have, we can be some of the most broken, fearful, and, and people living in pain around. This is the resurrection community. There is hope here. Now listen, I'm not belittling the reality of fear and anxiety and depression. They're real. I know that. I've got friends who I pray with who are suffering with it. All I'm wanting to do is make sure we elevate the resurrection to its proper place. I'm not belittling anything that any of you are facing this morning. It's real. And some of you feel like you're leaving more on the Friday, Good Friday, than what you are on the Sunday. All I'm wanting to do is not belittle that but it's to elevate what Jesus has won for us. Because resurrection, Easter, means shalom. It means wholeness. It means peace, regardless of our circumstances. Let's stand.